Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach the Catholic faith, which comes down to us from Jesus and the apostles over 2,000 years. Our goal is to help you to know your faith, to love your faith, and to live your faith with purpose and passion, and even be able to defend it. Uh, sometimes on the, our podcast show, we have scholars who are experts in their field, or people who have conversion stories, or people who have written books, uh, or who have a testimony of some type. But today, uh, we have a very special guest joining us again. His name is Dr. Michael Nazir Ali, and he is a former Anglican bishop who is a convert to the Catholic Church. He has received various uh, numerous degrees and awards from many prestigious universities. He has also uh, served as the di uh, director of Oxtrad, which is the Oxford Center for Training, Research, Advocacy, and Dialogue. He's also an expert and a scholar on the topic of Islam and has several books written on the subject and speaks extensively on the subject. And so it's with great pleasure that I would like to welcome you back to our show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brad. Absolutely. Uh, before we get started, could you please give us a a brief history and overview of Islam? I think that would be helpful for people who may or may not know about it. Yes, of course. Well, historically, Islam arose in the 7th century uh, AD of, of our era, uh, and it arose, uh, as far as we know, uh, in what is now the peninsula of Arabia. Uh, as a result of uh, the man who was to become the prophet of Islam, Muhammad, uh, having a powerful religious experience when he was meditating in a cave, um, which he understood as a revelation from God through the angel Gabriel. Uh, this revelation came to him at different times in different ways and was recorded in different ways uh, at different times. Uh, so that's how it arose. At first, he had very few followers in Mecca, which was his hometown. Uh, and he was um, persecuted for his beliefs because the Meccans were frankly polytheistic. And he was preaching a kind of monotheism, rather like the Jewish uh, and Christian faiths. Uh, so originally he sent some of his followers to exile as refugees uh, to Abyssinia or Ethiopia, as we now call it, where the Christian king gave them asylum uh, and for which he is remembered with, with honor still in the Muslim world. Uh, eventually, uh, the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad himself, had to flee Mecca and go to Medina, uh, a city nearby, uh, where he became not only the spiritual, but also the temp temporal leader, secular leader of the place. Um, Medina was a very mixed city with a very large Jewish population. Uh, and so, uh, Islam takes its sort of political uh, form or character from that period. Uh, that's how it arose. Um, there are certain basic elements of its belief, for instance, belief in one God, which is seen strictly in numerical terms, uh, one being 
the number one uh, rather than a unity uh, with the uh, distinction of persons as in, as in the Christian doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, there is the requirement to pray five times a day, to fast uh, in the season of fasting, which is rather like the Christian Lent, uh, to give alms, to go on pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, as it were, to touch base with the source of their faith. I mean, I think those are the basic duties. There is, of course, one other duty, which is to engage in jihad, uh, which has been variously understood at different times, um, but originally was armed action to open the way for the propagation of the faith, their faith. Um, we can talk about that in greater detail, uh, but those are the origins. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would I think be a good place to continue and to pick up um, about jihad and uh, the I guess Islamic expansion, which really happened rapidly and uh, you know quite um, quickly. You know, from Asia all the way over to Africa and into Europe and large parts of the world, they started to take over. Maybe you can talk about that expansion and maybe a little bit about jihad as well. Yes, I mean, the fundamental understanding of jihad is that it is action to open the way to Islam where it is not uh, yet open. And that can be understood in many different ways, of course. But its effect uh, originally was um, a very rapid expansion of the Muslim armies into what was then almost wholly a Christian Middle East. So the great Christian cities at that time were in the Middle East, Alexandria, Damascus, Jerusalem, of course, uh, Edessa, uh, city now just a small town in Turkey, and of course, Constantinople. So um, Egypt uh, was subdued, Syria was subdued, Palestine, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, but also the Persian Empire, which was the center of the Zoroastrian faith, uh, was rapidly taken. Uh, and uh, the armies, Muslim armies, reached the Indus uh, in the east and eventually reached Spain and even southern France in the west. Uh, it was within a hundred years um, of its origins, historical origins, it had spread to such an extent. Um, and of course, that expansion gradually, eventually, uh, but um, quite dramatically changed uh, the whole scene in the Middle East, uh, its religious and cultural makeup. Yeah, I, uh, I read a six volume uh, history book set by Warren H. Carroll. And one thing that struck me while I was, you know, studying that history of the church was the fact that Rome and the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire had been at each other's throats for so long and been, you know, kind of fighting back and forth and really just weakened each other at just the, like completely weakened each other at just the time that Islam came to power and just kind of walked over both of them. I mean, the two major empires on earth were 
almost walked over almost overnight. It's, it's actually kind of shocking to me how fast it, uh, Islam expanded. Um, did, yes, did you- I think the exhaustion of the of Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and of um, the Persian Empire certainly played a part in, in their collapse. Uh, the Persian Empire collapsed completely. Byzantium didn't collapse completely. It lost huge territory in Egypt and Syria and so on. Uh, but Constantinople survived for many hundreds of years after that. Uh, and it was only in 1453 that Constantinople was taken not by the Arabs, but by the Turks, uh, who had become Muslim in the meantime. So, um, yes, it was. there was hundreds of years of wars of attrition with the Eastern Roman Empire before it fell. The Western Empire, of course, had been overtaken by barbarian invasions uh, earlier than that. And it was only the papacy that um, continued to uphold civilization until the new empires and nations in Western Europe began to emerge. Yeah, I think that was incredibly powerful as well and very interesting as well. Um, Isn't that why the Crusades were started kind of as uh, wars of self-defense? You had said that they had taken over, you know, a large number of Christian lands and um, empires and such. And could you maybe just give a brief outline that wasn't on the questions? But now that I'm thinking about it, um, you know, I I have always said that the Crusades were wars of self-defense, you know, to kind of come to help um constantinople and christians in the east the holy land and such but maybe you can talk about that yeah there were three reasons uh, specifically why the crusades began uh, the first was that the seljuk turks were blocking the path of western european pilgrims to the holy land now this was uh, of huge importance at the time because Uh, the Holy Land was regarded as the fifth gospel. So, you know, you had the four written gospels, but if you wanted to know what they really meant, you had to go on pilgrimage either to the land itself or to some recreation of the land, like Walsingham was in England and so on. So that caused enormous distress. Secondly, there was an unbalanced uh, caliph, a Fatimi caliph, uh, who... uh, raised the Church of the Holy Sepulchre completely to the ground. Um, he also later on went, went on to destroy uh, Muslim, some Muslim places of worship as well. Uh, but the news of the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre uh, caused fury, of course, in Catholic Europe. And thirdly, the Eastern Roman Empire explicitly appealed to the Pope for help because he was constantly under pressure uh, from uh, Muslim forces of different kinds at different times uh, and was losing territory to them. So those were the three immediate reasons why the Crusades were called. Thank you. That's what I had always heard too. And I think that's a different uh, narrative than many people present today. So I think that's important to know and understand. Um, Now, 
Islam had taken over a lot of the world at this point. Can you talk about the Dima or the, the systematic discrimination of non-Muslims? Yes, uh, when uh, the Muslim armies conquered these Christian territories, there were significant numbers of Jews and Christians living in them, of course. Uh, and for quite some time, they were the majority. Um, and uh, the Muslim armies had to rely on them for administration, uh, for financial arrangements, um, all kinds of things, skills that were needed for urban living, um, which these people from the desert did not at that time possess. Um, so a way had to be found to both accommodate them and to keep them in their place, if you see what I mean. And the dimma was developed as a way of uh, allowing these people, Jews and Christians at first, later Zoroastrians in Iran, and later still Hindus and Buddhists uh, in the lands of the Indus, uh, a way had to be found to get them to continue doing their agricultural work, uh, their craftsmanship, their education, and health, and so on. Uh, for a long time, the Christian priest in the Islamic world was also seen as a physician, uh, for example. Uh, but to keep them, as it were, as second-class citizens. So they had to pay a special tax, uh, which was uh, designed in such a way that its payment, uh, by its payment, both the one who received the payment and the one who made the payment could recognize uh, the um, second-class status of the one paying the tax. Um, they could retain their places of worship, but they could not build new ones or repair the existing places without permission. Uh, this still remains a live issue in places like Egypt, for instance, today. Um, they uh, could not ride horses, but had to ride donkeys or mules. Uh, their houses could not be more prominent than Muslim houses, homes, uh, and so on. There was a whole string of practices uh, that showed that they were uh, second class. Um, so there was this process of attrition. The um, Muslims could marry Christian and Jewish women, but not the other way around. Uh, and gradually, uh, this resulted uh, in these majorities being turned into minorities, which they still are. Um, there was also, of course, sporadic persecution, uh, overtly, uh, sometimes mob violence, sometimes officially sanctioned. Uh, and uh, the Crusades, which you mentioned, um, I keep telling my um, Muslim friends that uh, the people arguably who suffered most during the Crusades were the Eastern Christians, because the, the Muslims regarded them as a fifth column, and the Western Christians thought of them as heretics, so they were, they were caught in the middle. Um, and um, 
the, the crusade against Constantinople, for instance, which established a Latin uh, regime there, arguably weakened Constantinople to such an extent that it, it fell. Um, so the, the history is, is somewhat mixed, but, uh, but that, is how, uh, that is how it happened. And the, the dimma still lurks over Eastern Christians, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever. Um, not only in terms of rules and regulations, but how it changes people's mentality. If you are, if you've been subject like that for uh, several hundred years, 1300 years or whatever it might be, that changes your way of thinking. It creates what is known as a dimmi mentality. Um, so equal citizenship, certainly, for Christians and other minorities in the Islamic world must be a priority for us to, to argue for. Some people, sorry, I have a question off the top of my head. <laughs> um, some people, so basically you're saying that uh, Muhammad led armies onto the battlefield, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, until he died. So, you know, their wars of expansion started in the seventh century in the 600s and continued I think beyond the around the 1400s and beyond, right? So that, that's a long period of time for warfare and expansion. Um, so, I, at least for me, it seems different. You know, like yeah, Muhammad was persecuted, right? He, I mean, they they chased him out, and Jesus was too. But it seems to me that Islam took a different way of, I guess, retaliation and expansion versus Christianity. Whereas Jesus preached love, it seems like. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like Islam chose the sword. Is there some truth to the fact that uh, the convert or die? You know, people say, oh, Islam took over by converting or, you know, offering two options, conversion or death. Is there some truth to that? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, I think on the basic difference, um, the, the basic difference, I'm a famous scholar of Islam, very sympathetic scholar of Islam, Kenneth Craig, when he was asked about, you know, this, Somebody said to him, well, you are such a student of Islam. Uh, what is the difference in the end between Christianity and Islam? And he said, well, uh, the difference is the attitude to power. So Christianity has always believed that you change the world by giving up power. That is the message of the cross. Islam believes that you change the world by taking power. I think that's, that's the difference. Um, yeah, um, Islam did not expand outside the borders of Arabia before the death of the Prophet of Islam. It was after that that it um, expanded, although there are letters, supposed letters, uh, by him inviting various rulers like the Byzantine uh, emperor and the governor of Egypt and so on to accept Islam. We cannot uh, vouch for their authenticity, but they do exist. Um, the, during his lifetime, yes, there was fighting against the pagan Meccans uh, throughout. Eventually, Mecca itself was conquered uh, by the Muslims. 
And there was fighting against the Jews because it was believed that the Jews were cooperating with the pagan Meccans. Where the Christians are concerned, the, uh, the Christians of Najran, which was an important Christian state, uh, there was uh, extended dialogue. They were invited by him to come uh, to Medina, where they were lodged in the Prophet's mosque uh, and allowed to uh, hold the, the divine liturgy there whilst they were there. And there was theological conversation about this, who Jesus is, what Christians believe about God and so on. And although there was not agreement, of course, uh, a treaty was concluded with the Christians of Najran. Uh, and they were left um, unharmed during his lifetime. But after, as soon as he died, uh, a saying of his was discovered that Arabia should have only one religion. And so uh, the pagans were offered the choice between conversion, exile, or death. And the Christians and the Jews uh, were told to leave Arabia, uh, which they did. So the Jews went to the area of Jericho, and the Christians went to what is now modern Iraq. Um, that is... That is how it happened. So until modern times, Peninsular Arabia did not have uh, any other religious presence. It was only the discovery of oil and so forth that now there are large numbers of expatriate Christians in, in those parts. That's very interesting. Thank you for, for that. Um, could you please give an overview of some of the uh, problematic, perhaps, teachings of Islam? Yeah, well, we mentioned the Dhimma, of course. Um, I think the, uh, where um, the, the radicals' agenda is concerned, what they, um, what they desire, first of all, is uh, the creation of what they call pan-Islam. That is to say, they don't believe in nation-states. They believe that the whole Islamic um, community should be one throughout the world and that this uh, community should be governed by a caliph. Now, this is not actually just radicals. Quite a large number of mod so-called moderate Muslims also would believe this, that a caliph is necessary for in Sunni Islam, um, which is the majority. Um, hence, um, various extremists like the leader of ISIS and so on proclaiming themselves to be the caliph because that is regarded as theologically necessary uh, to make a call to jihad, for instance, or to implement Islamic law. Uh, then there is the implementation of the sharia of Islamic law in all its rigor with the penal punishments, for example, with the restrictions on non-Muslims, uh, with the restrictions on women, and so on. So that is a very large part of the radical Islamist agenda. Now, throughout the course of Islamic history, uh, many Muslims have tried, in one way or another, especially since the 18th century, 
to accommodate the Sharia to emerging modern conditions. Uh, but the radicals, the Islamists of different kinds reject this as a compromise. Um, and so you find the kinds of extremist punishments, of uh, extremist action, of an understanding of, of jihad and uh, of separating themselves even from other Muslims and so on. Um, and then, um, yeah, there is this systemic discrimination against non-Muslims, uh, which they find to be part of Sharia law. Uh, punishments for apostasy and blasphemy, for instance, which catch people uh, who do not conform to their orthodoxy. Uh, and systemic discrimination against women in terms of divorce, custody of children, inheritance. Uh, public life, uh, education, and so on. Uh, that brings up another question that I have off the cuff. Because, um, you know, Islam, I feel like Islam, Muslims are very dishonest sometimes what they say as compared to what they actually believe are sometimes two different things. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, it seems like they say, oh, you know, Islam is the religion that respects women the most, you know, we, whereas other religions like Christianity don't respect women at all. But then, you know, I think of the fact that it takes four women in the court of law to equal one man. And then you just mentioned the other discrimination in public life and other things like that. So it seems to me that they don't, I, I'm not sure how to reconcile that. <laughs> mm. Uh, two women to one man. Um, two but, women to but, one man. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you can respect people and still discriminate against them. That is, that is quite possible. I mean, there is a sense in which uh, people respect um, Muslim women as mothers and sisters and so on. Of course they do. Uh, but that is not the same thing as uh, women having the same rights, whether, you know, I mean, take Saudi Arabia until recently, women couldn't drive a car or go to a restaurant on their own or travel abroad. And um, in terms of educational opportunity, we, we know now with the Taliban in Afghanistan on Islamic grounds, they are preventing girls going to school. So, uh, you know, what is the cash value in the end of saying, uh, women have equality. Um, the most sort of careful thinkers of in the Islamist mold would say uh, women have all the rights that Islam has given them. You see, but that is not the same thing uh, as equal rights. For example, in terms of divorce, custody of children, inheritance, evidence in the courts, all of those things. Okay, thank you for that. Very interesting. Um, very interesting. And that's like a whole show on itself. So we'll leave it there. <laughs> um, so actually, if you don't mind, before we give you the last question, I have one other off the cuff question that you've made me think of. You keep bringing up radical Islam. And a lot of people in here in the United States, I'm not sure if it's the same with you in Britain, but here in the United States, people say, oh, it's radical Islam. If someone, you know, committed an act of violence, it's radical Islam. But to me, that, and this is just kind of how I think of it, but 
the majority of the history of Islam was, quote, radical and violent and one of warfare and expansion. So is it real? I mean, I guess today it might be considered radical, but in general, that's what Islam was in a in its essence you know as you said it's almost like a like a sixth pillar uh, of jihad yeah it depends i mean uh, the sufis for instance the islamic mystics uh saw jihad as something that was internal that was about right struggle with their own lower self for instance and then some social reformers particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries early 20th century thought of jihad as uh, a struggle against social evils that we would call um, and those things have to be kept in mind however the fundamental meaning of jihad is opening the way for the propagation of islam where it is not yet possible that is how it is understood so when the ottomans took over from the arabs they the ottoman ruler claimed to be the caliph i mean in one sense, this was laughable because the qualifications for a caliph uh, were that he should not only be of Arab descent, but of, a, of the tribe of the Prophet of Islam itself. So what was a jumped up Turk claiming to be caliph then? And he justified it by saying that he was now the only ruler who was waging jihad. And where was he waging jihad? In um, Mainly in southern and eastern Europe. Uh, so, um, yeah, that understanding has always remained uh, and continues uh, today. Of course, there have been uh, very notable uh, scholars, Islamic scholars, who have tried to reinterpret Sharia in terms of modern conditions, whether that is jihad or whether that is the penal law of Islam or whether that is discrimination against women. And we have to recognize that also because uh, modern Egypt, for instance, was founded uh, on a kind of reformist view of Islam by scholars like Muhammad Abdu. Uh, and in India, uh, very quickly um, after the British assumed power, there were many distinguished Muslims who tried to come to terms with the modern world uh, and uh, the country of Pakistan was founded on on the back of some of their work. I mean, it didn't stay that way. That's a different matter, but that is how it was founded. And I think that's a good thing. I think all the reform is good. I think the coming to terms with the modern world is a good thing, but I do think it is a bit inaccurate, in my opinion, to say radicalism when that is probably more of the accurate representation of what Islam is and has been traditionally and historically, wouldn't you say? Well, that, of course, is what the radicals say. I mean, so the uh, they justify their actions by an appeal to the primary sources. Um, and generally speaking, the moderate Muslims uh, have not been able to answer them. Interesting. Okay. Um, so Muslims claim that the Bible is corrupt, tarif, uh, while the Quran is perfect, always unchanging book. Uh, are either of these statements true? 
Well, uh, let's look at the Bible, first of all. Um, the Jews and the Samaritans were historically uh, at odds with each other throughout history. But the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Hebrew Pentateuch are not dissimilar. I mean, there may be one or two variations here and there of the text, but they're basically the same books. In the same way, uh, the Jewish people and Christians have been hostile to one another over the course of history in different ways. We may regret that, but that is a fact. And yet the Christian uh, Old Testament, as we call it, and the, the Hebrew Bible of the Jews is the same. You see. So if there had been any desire to change, then it would have happened there. Uh, where the New Testament is concerned, uh, we have hundreds of manuscripts in many different ancient languages, including, of course, the original Greek, but also in Syriac, in Coptic, in Arabic, indeed, uh, in Old Latin, and so on. Uh, and when an edition of the Bible in any language is prepared today, all these manuscripts are examined. Uh, and a critical edition is prepared after having examined all of them. Um, and there is a critical apparatus uh, by which you can do this. So um, the existence of many manuscripts, in my view, is a strength and not a weakness. Uh, because by examining them all, we can arrive at a reliable text. Where uh, the Quran is concerned, uh, it was, of course, as I was saying earlier, given piecemeal. It was written down piecemeal, and it was, uh, it was of course, uh, memorized uh, by, by people, including the Prophet himself and his followers. And it was only at the time of the third caliph that there were so many uh, Usman, that there were so many var variants that uh, a standard, it was decided that the standard edition should be made. When it was completed, all the variants were supposedly destroyed, but we know that some of them actually survived. So, uh, of course, uh, even with such a standard edition, some verses like the stoning verse, which is about the stoning to death of adulterers, uh, that was, it is said, that was lost. Uh, there were questions about certain surahs, chapters of the Quran, whether they should be in or out. Uh, those matters had to be decided. The Shia uh, claim that some of the... Uh, some of the... Um, teachings about the primacy of Ali, uh, the prophet's son-in-law, <clears throat> um, that um, didn't appear. Uh, and um, um, the most important thing is that this standard version that was created, the variants were destroyed, I mean, from the point of view of an observer, how do we know 
that one of those variants that was destroyed was not a more genuine text. We can't know. With the Christian uh, survival of all the variant manuscripts, you can examine them all and arrive at a critical text. That is not possible uh, with the text of the Quran as it is now, uh, because the very variants have been destroyed. Um, there are differences between the two books. Um, the Bible took, um, well, let's say, a thousand years to complete. Yeah. Um, many different genres of literature, poetry, history, allegory, etc., are in it, uh, written by different people at different times. Uh, the text of the Quran, uh, as it is supposed to have been revealed to the Prophet of Islam, was revealed in the course of 20 years. So there are different kinds of books. I mean, uh, it is very difficult to compare them. The Bible has received, of all the books in the world, the most critical historical literary criticism uh, in the world. I mean, there's nothing to compare. No other literature, secular or religious, has received such attention. And its integrity has survived uh, after such um, rigorous uh, critical work on it. Um, those Islamic scholars who have tried to bring the same principles of literary and historical critical work on the Quran have been prevented from doing so. Uh, I think that's a pity because I think a text, our understanding of a text is enriched by historical critical work uh, and uh, historical and literary critical work. So that's, that's another point uh, that has to be made, that if people are saying the Bible is corrupt because they have studied its historical and literary criticism, then uh, they must allow such historical and literary work on their own texts. Uh, you can't have it all one way. Um, From the, from the Christian point of view, of course, many of the stories and the characters in the Quran also occur in the Bible. Um, and indeed, in Jewish and Christian literature outside the Bible. So some of the miracles attributed to Jesus in the Quran are not in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, but they are in things like the infancy stories about Jesus and so on. Now, Common sense uh, would lead us to say, well, where have these stories come from? And the, the Muslim answer is, well, uh, God revealed himself in the Christian and Jewish holy books. And so if he's revealed the same things uh, to our prophet in the Quran, why should that be a surprise? Uh, well, maybe, but uh, that is not uh, how we view literature. Uh, if I find a quote from Shakespeare or a story in Shakespeare in some novelist's work today, 
my natural inclination is to ask, well, where in Shakespeare has this come from? So we have to, uh, we need to, we must, and we naturally do ask such questions. Finally, there's the question of the message. You see, even if the integrity of a book is completely proven, you still have to ask, what is the message of this book? So the message of the Bible is that God has created the universe in love, that human beings have spoiled God's purposes, and that God is providing throughout the course of history, but particularly in Jesus Christ, a way of uh, humans being reconciled to God and therefore redeemed by what Christ has done. It's a story of reconciliation, of redemption, a story of uh, sacrificial love, uh, all of these things. So um, what is the message of the Quran? I mean, we have to ask Muslims that question. Um, and in what way does it exceed or excel the message of the Bible? Um, you know, why should we uh, give up the Bible uh, for something that doesn't say anything new, or if it does, it's something we cannot accept? You know, modern um, Muslim apologists talk about, you know, the Quran has never changed, you know, not even a letter. I hear that a lot. And you're talking about how there were different variations, there were different texts, different people who memorized uh, different traditions, and, you know, they they were all just removed. And so I don't understand how they could say, you know, that it's always been the same, it's never changed. Um, I don't think ancient or older uh, Muslim apologists would ever claim this. And, and and it calls to mind, too, that they Muhammad had to memorize. I mean, the Quran's like 800,000 pages, and he had to memorize it all. How do we know he memorized it all correctly? How do we know he got it all correct? I mean, I think there's a lot of questions about Tarif or, you know, I guess they would say regarding the Quran itself. Um, I just don't think the picture that they paint that it's always been the same and every there's not one letter that's been changed because when it gets translated into different languages, it's very difficult, you know, and different words are going to come up by different interpreters and translators. And I think the same thing happens in uh, the Quran as well. You know, you see different variations. I have a more fundamentalist uh, Quran, uh, which varies from other more, I don't want to say liberal, but not as hardcore, you know, as the one I have. Yeah, well, of course, on the translation question, they would say um, there can be translations of the Quran, but actually it's only the Arabic that carries authority. <clears throat> um, yeah, um, well, I mean, the, the earliest manuscripts of the Quran don't have the pointing that Semitic languages require, the voweling that they require for a word to make sense. They don't have those po that pointing. That pointing has to be read in. And it was eventually read in and then put in. And that was, to some extent, an arbitrary act. I mean, how do we know whether the pointing is... Uh, people will say, well, it's because it was always recited, so people knew how it was pronounced. 
Well, okay, but that then that depends on the recitation of the person who's doing the recitation. How do we know that they were reciting correctly and so on? Um, there is also, of course, more seriously, the, doc the Quranic doctrine of abrogation, that earlier verses have been abrogated by later verses. And this is particularly about relations with uh, people of other faiths, uh, that the, the friendlier verses generally, certainly Islamists claim, have been abrogated by the stricter verses. So um, how do we know? Uh, what is actually now, uh, as it were, uh, authoritative. Um, yeah, there are all those questions that, that have to be asked. But in the end, I think the question is, whatever you say about the transmission of a text and so on, the question is, what is the message of the text? So uh, to take examples, uh, from other traditions, if the message of a Buddhist text is that there is no self, there is no such thing as God, that it is the cause of your suffering to believe that there is. Well, whatever the integrity of the text transmission, as Christians, we can't accept that. So, um, the Quran, uh, if the Quran teaches that um, Jesus is not the Son of God, that there is no such thing as the Blessed Trinity, uh, we cannot accept that. Whatever the, <laughs> whatever the um, health of the transmission of that particular text might be. Uh, just a 30-second answer here, or one-minute answer, but you mentioned abrogation. We're, I, I have uh, one of the earliest uh, biographies on Muhammad by a Muslim. It's one of the most authoritative biographies, and it talks about the satanic verses and how Muhammad was duped you know, by Satan, and a lot of those verses needed to be abrogated as well. Um, have you heard of that? Yes, but there are many other uh, cases of abrogation. For instance, uh, the abrogation of alcohol, that uh, in, the, in an earlier verse it is praised as one of the signs of God, but later uh, we are told that it is no longer, um, that it, 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 its dangers are more than its benefits. Uh, similarly, the direction in which Muslims pray has been changed um, uh, from Jerusalem to Mecca. So there are many instances of this. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, I, again, a whole show in itself, so we'll let it go there. But uh, thank you for the wonderful overview of uh, Islam, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Brian. Absolutely, and I want to thank all of our listeners out there for, for really continuing to watch our podcast and share these videos. Please do your part and share this video and get the word out there. Help other Catholics to be educated as well. And uh, if you would like to see our show notes, we will link uh, uh, Dr. Michael Nazir Ali and his website down below. And we will link our uh, website down below as well, along with our social media, our Patreon, our PayPal, and everything else. So please check that out if you have a chance and keep praying for us because we're always praying for you. God bless you.